Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Continuing a tradition that has lasted over 30 years, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi began his first overseas trip of the year with visit to African countries. In the first half of his trip, he went to Egypt, Tunisia, Togo and Cote d'Ivoire. And the second half will take him to Brazil and Jamaica. What does this trip tell us about China's foreign diplomacy in 2024? And what's China's policy with these countries and regions? Join us for our discussion today from Beijing. I'm Xu Qinduo. Joining us for today's show are He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing, and Paul Frimpong, Executive Director of the Africa-China Center for Policy and Advisory in Accra, and Sanusha Nadu, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue in Cape Town, and Ahmad Halal, MENA Practice Director of the Global Council in Doha. Welcome to Dialogue. Wenping, I will start with you. You know, uh, that's the Chinese tradition to start the first visit every year uh, to African countries. This year, starting with uh, North Africa, uh, exactly Egypt and Tunisia. So what are the major uh, priorities for uh, Minister Wang? For Minister Wang, now this time, as you just mentioned, uh, traveled to two North African uh, countries and then moved to uh, two West African countries. I think, uh, of course, this trip itself has shows China has always uh, taken Africa as the high uh, priority for China's diplomacy and uh, also this. Uh, tradition has been kept for such a long time, 34 years already. But each visit uh, also comes with its uh, own feature. For example, you just mentioned Egypt and also Tunisia. Uh, Egypt particularly, now a lot of things has been discussed about uh, this new round of uh, Hamas and the Israel conflict and the Red Sea security. I noticed that the joint statement has been also published uh, between China and Egypt, and even China and the Arab League together. So calling for a uh, ceasefire uh, in, the, in Gaza and calling for humanitarian, you know, this uh, corridor, security corridor for humanitarian assistance, and also calling for the fundamental solution uh, for this, uh, you know, Palestinian issue is the two-state solution. So all of those, of course, shows China, Egypt. Now we share a lot of things uh, in common, and we also uh, both uh, should take this, uh, you know, responsibility uh, to bring this crisis uh, to the end. I mm -hmm. think another two countries in the Western African country, uh, one like Cote d'Ivoire, now is hosting uh, this uh, uh, African Cup. Now, many of my African friends now they keep watching uh, this game. You see, because that stadium also been built by Chinese company. I think uh, Chinese foreign minister also will share mm -hmm. our uh, congratulations for this African Cup. Yeah, hopefully uh, he can have some fun, you know, in the stadium. <laughs> uh, Ahmed, you know, if you look at uh, the Chinese tradition uh, last year, I believe, also this year, you know, Egypt uh, has been the destination of Chinese foreign minister in the two consecutive years. So uh, what does this tell us about China's interests probably in this region? Well, it doesn't surprise me that Egypt is the first stop on this tour, given what's happening in the Red Sea. It's a trade choke point. It's an important global trade artery and it handles about 10 or 12 percent of global trade, but it's particularly important for China, for its export-oriented economy, for it to be able, to, it depends on seaborne trade, so for it to be able to export its goods 
to foreign markets like the European Union, like the US, it makes that route, makes that journey through the Babylon-Mandab Strait in the Red Sea and onwards to the Suez Canal. So Egypt is strategically important for, for China uh, as the country that oversees the Suez Canal. But Egypt is also important because it has, China has a lot of investments in the Suez Canal economic zone that it needs to protect. Uh, from these threats to Red, uh, Red Sea shipping interests. Uh, China is also one of Egypt's largest lenders and has a long-standing strategic relationship uh, with Egypt. And Egypt sees China as an important par partner for its development. It welcomes Chinese investment in infrastructure. It also sees China as a, as a counterbalance, as an alternative uh, to the U.S. to be able to counterbalance U.S. dominance in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, bring in uh, Sanusha, you know, like uh, what do you make of China's, uh, you know, the, the foreign minister's trip to African countries, you know, at the beginning of every year here? It's been tradition and it's been one that I think has continued to demonstrate China's relationship with Africa, but more importantly to, to, share, to say that Africa features as a priority in China's new year. I think this year is even more so because it's the ninth uh, FOCAC summit that's going to happen at the uh, in Beijing. And of course, it's going to be important as well because it's about cementing the engagement, particularly you know, in terms of some of the points raised by my colleagues about the geostrategic interests of Africa, the trade dimensions, the, the security architecture. And these are areas where China has also made these priority areas in terms of how it wants to deepen its development cooperation partnership and engagement with African countries in terms of also aligning to the industrialization of Africa, the engagement of deepening Africa's uh, integration into global markets. I think the countries that, that we see on this tour by the foreign minister of China is very interesting. Um, Egypt has been alluded to by the previous speaker, but I think in terms of Togo and Cote d'Ivoire, and apart from the kind of symbolicness, it's also about looking at how does uh, uh, China also align to some of the socio-economic priorities that it wants to see itself in terms of the development architecture and in terms of the funding that comes through development cooperation. So there's a sense there that these countries will also represent how does China configure its Africa policy, but also from a regional perspective. And my colleague in, in, in Accra will probably expand on this in terms of the West African engagement between China and, of course, countries that exist within that regional block as well. Paul, you have been writing, you have been following this, uh, the Chinese engagement in Africa. And one issue, you know, often talked about in media is the, the so-called the, the debt issue. You know, some Western media, they would call it like a debt trap <laughs> diplomacy. Uh, I would call it a fake accusation. Uh, tell us more about that. You know, what is really going on there? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I mean, as you rightly said, this is a narrative that is not backed by any facts or, or whatsoever. I mean, when you track the numbers in terms of the African continent, current debt level, nobody is saying that we don't have uh, issues about debt-related uh, crisis. In fact, Zambia, my own country, Ghana, currently we are going uh, debt restructuring. We have to go to the IMF for a bailout last year. So obviously it shows that the reality is that countries on the continent, some number of countries on the continent are suffering from debt-related crisis. But to sum all that and put it together and say that China is causing some of these debts quite not true because the fact that I don't support this. Because look across the continent of Africa, track all the external, total external debt of the continent of Africa, you're looking at between uh, 10 to 12% that is owned to China. 
my case, Ghana, as, as a country, as a case study, when look at our total external debt, it's around $30 billion. And out of this $30 billion, only $1.9 billion, that is about 5 to 6% of this, is owed to China. So the question is, who owns the remaining 94% of Ghana's uh, total external debt? We are not allowed to ask that question. Again, we are not even allowed to interrogate what those money that were and borrowed from China were used for, because then again, we can have to also interrogate what those monies are used for, because debt in itself is not bad, but depends on what those funds are used for. We are not even allowed to ask those questions. So to sum it up and say that because we owe China 4% of our total external debt, therefore China is the cause of our debt crisis. It's not, it's not founded anyway. Sanusha. You know, that that is an issue for some uh, developing countries, you know, with the pandemic, three years, and also with, uh, say, the raising of interest rates in the United States, appreciation of the U.S. dollar, of course, that uh, creates this actual burden, say, for, uh, you know, for developing countries, you know, debt distress or this uh, vulnerability, you know, in terms of paying back uh, the foreign, uh, foreign uh, debt there. So how are the developing African countries coping with that, that issue? And I know that the international community are trying, the countries from China, you know, US, uh, the West, they are trying to solve this problem. And, uh, you know, uh, can we resolve it? And where are we now? It's a very difficult problem and complex problem to address in the context of the diversity of African economies across the continent. You're looking at about 54 countries and the economies of scale are so differential that it's very difficult to say that a one-stop kind of approach is going to do that. I think one of the issues that has been critical is the role of the DCC, the DSSI, uh, in terms of the G20 and how that has played. And China's kind of leading that role in the G20 in terms of the debt suspension uh, service initiative. And, and, and that is in a sense to give countries like in Africa who have not been able to re recon reconfigure their economies after the COVID-19, but also have struggled even before COVID-19 with the integration into the global economy in terms of whether they are at that point to, to be competitive um, and the export-led growth model has been very difficult and complex at times to find the kind of return on of, of trade. Um, it has been a bit of a, a challenge and it's been kind of challenging in the G20 to see how this has been managed. I think with, with African Union now being asked to or being invited to become the 21st member of the G20, we'll see to what extent that can coalesce a kind of coherent response from the African bloc in the G20 around the, around the debt issue and, and dealing with the debt question. I think African countries in terms of where they are economically, again, it's very fragmented. Um, the coherence of trade internally between African countries is quite low. It's around about, you know, 15, 16% in terms of where it should be around about maybe even double or treble that figure, if not more. And I think this is again coming back to the kind of structural conditions and the economic architecture that exists in terms of the, the purchasing power parity internally, the question of how you trade across borders in Africa. And this is why the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, having been ratified, is now in the very instrumental stage and critical stage of implementation. This requires African countries to domesticate instruments around the African Continental Free Trade Agreement to deal with issues around how they're going to create much more inclusive trade across borders within Africa before you start thinking about the export-led growth model and how you're going to trade with the outside world, you've got to start building up the trade dimension and the trade engagements in terms of 
whether you call it liberalization of our borders, liberalization of internal trade mechanisms, looking at the tariff and the non-tariff barriers. Because the, one of the, the key drivers within Africa is the question of zero tariffing trade or under the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. But the non-tariff barriers, the borders, the visa, the free movement of people and goods and services also has to be addressed. And one of the key challenges as well within this is the rules of origin. So if trade is going to be a key panacea for African development in terms of socioeconomic, reducing poverty, dealing with uh, inequality, and actually creating prosperity for better lives and livelihoods in Africa, then you have to start thinking about the instrumentalization of key policies internally within African countries. Last point to make here on this is the question of if you take a country like Lesotho and a country like Nigeria, or even the country of, uh, of South Africa, the economies of scale are so big and different. The question remains is, Will African countries like Lesotho, who are small, landlocked, don't have access to ports, have to have to rely on uh, transport corridors and regional economic corridors in order to move goods and services outside of their country? Will they be able to do so? Because there's also the question of how do these economies get compensated mm -hmm. for the kinds of implementation that they need to do? So will it be more useful for them to look towards a kind of free trade agreement or a kind of preferential trade agreement? whether it's the African Growth and Opportunity Act or whether it's something that comes through uh, through China in terms of boosting trade. And these are the complexities of how do you deal with trade in the African context. Uh, yes, trade and also infrastructure in terms of uh, connecting different uh, markets uh, inside Africa continent and also with, uh, with uh, those uh, markets beyond uh, Africa there. Uh, Hamad, you know, where are we now in terms of this Gaza conflict? We know, you know, uh, there is a critical role to be played by, say, uh, Doha and also Egypt, uh, and China is trying to play a role there. But where are we now? Well, I think there are efforts from all countries except Israel and the United States to de-escalate de and to bring the war into a, a total conclusion. And uh, China, the Chinese foreign minister and his Egyptian counterpart called for an immediate and comprehensive uh, ceasefire in this conflict. China has been increasingly active diplomatically in the region. Uh, last year, China brokered the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The US is in fact asking China to use its channels, its influence on Iran to rein in some of the non-state groups in the region, like the Houthis, like Hezbollah, that are allied with Iran as part of this axis of resistance to rein them in. But China does not want to get involved militarily in, in, in this conflict in, in the Red Sea, even though its commercial shipping interests are seriously affected by this situation. We saw that uh, the major shipping company, Costco uh, of China, had to suspend many of the ships that used to pass through the Red Sea because of, of the instability there. Uh, when PM, you know, earlier, Ahmad mentioned the interesting point of the Red Sea situation. You know, the, the U.S. and the U.K., they say they are trying to deter the Houthis from disrupting the safe passage of commercial ships for there. And China has an interest in safe passage of commercial ships uh, in this region. But why China, if you listen to carefully uh, the, the, the remarks of the Chinese officials, they, they are also critical of uh, what uh, the US and the UK has been doing, basically bombing the Houthis. You know, what is the justification? What is the rationale behind that? Yes, 
Yes, uh, this Red Sea crisis, I think uh, we have to uh, trace uh, all the way back to the origin. Uh, that is, uh, remain, uh, this uh, Gaza, this uh, bombing to Gaza and the conflict between Israel and the Palestine. So it's not just simple saying who say why they are disturbing uh, this uh, freedom of uh, navigation. So it's not that simple. That is why uh, I mentioned at the beginning how uh, China and Egypt we joined, uh, published the statement, and also China and the Arab League also published the joint statement, all cover uh, the issue about the Red Sea crisis. So both uh, China, Egypt and China, Arab League, we are calling for yeah, to safeguard this international, this very important this access uh, for all those commercial ships go through because this is uh, beneficial for all the you know, international this economic recovery and also uh, like uh, the global uh, economy. This is no doubt about that. But we also against this way, like uh, UK and the United States, like bombing this uh, territory even uh, in Yemen. And also, uh, this is not come up uh, with any green light from the UN Security Council's uh, this relevant resolution. And also, you have to protect uh, the sovereignty and also this come from the Yemen. This way itself actually not help at all uh, for reach the target saying to bring the safety to this Red Sea, this access. Actually, we see it spill over uh, even further. Now the Houthi come back again to attack uh, the US ships and then US and the UK bomb uh, uh, Yemen again. And uh, now the Biden administration even put the Houthi in the terrorist group at the name list again uh, before they moved it out. So you see those tensions rather than calm down. But I think now has been escalated. So if we escalate it, how come you can guarantee the safety of this Red Sea? So you always are uh, the way you have been doing and then against those wishes you want to uh, you know, to, to realize. Uh, actually, I think so far, we have to, like, uh, that's China saying, calling for restraint from both sides. You know, even the Iran now, because our colleagues mentioned about Iran's role, uh, seems China can pass some words uh, saying to Iran, or uh, asking Iran to do what, 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 what. I think uh, rather than calling for China to pass some words, uh, we need the United States White House pass stronger words, I think, to Israel. Uh, to Netanyahu, uh, you see, because all those conflicts originally is this uh, Palestine-Israel issue now spill over uh, to Hezbollah and then to the even Iran now also send the rockets now to Syria, base uh, those uh, Israel, uh, Mossad, those uh, you know the information center, intelligence center based in Syria and then also Iraqi, uh, Iraqi and Syria now spill over. Uh, once it spill over and over, of course, I think maybe all the international, our global economy uh, will buy the tickets now. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, not well, uh, good at all. Uh, it seems like uh, it's an issue of uh, legitimacy, you know, whether it's from the UN resolution or it's about the differences in means, you know, in what way to achieve peace and, let's say, uh, tranquility in this region. Well, Paul, you have been doing research on China-Africa relationship, but we know last year the leaders from both sides uh, talked about, uh, you know, cooperation, uh, not only in this uh, big ticket, uh, you know, infrastructure projects, but also small and beautiful projects that benefits uh, the community or village. So what are the priorities for this year? We know FOCAC is going to take place in China. I think, uh, first of all, I believe that the Africa-China relation has been evolving. I think that the, the relation is going to keep growing. 
amidst the negative sentiment that is being shared by people across other parts of the world in terms of what they believe that Africa should do in terms of our relationship with China. Because we are a continent of 54, 55 countries that decide on how we want to chart our development journey. So I believe that that is going to shape the kind of relationship that we have with China. Focal 2024, I believe, that focus that is going to help us to review some of the key pillars that has happened since Focal 2000 to see where we are in terms of the relation that we have with China. But most importantly, you mentioned about what happened last year in Johannesburg about the China-Africa China leaders uh, dialogue. Obviously, agriculture was one of the key things that came out, agriculture modernization. First of all, Africa sits on about 60% of the world's arable land. I mean, we all know that that is the, the situation of the continent of Africa. Unfortunately, the continent, again, in this same scenario, is a net importer of food. So in our own way, as a way of trying to transform our culture development journey, we mentioned what we call the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Program, which is under the Agenda 23 of the African continent, which is I mean, facilitated by the African Union. In there, we are talking about technology uh, uh, innovation, agriculture development, food supply innovation, talk about research into increasing the crop yield per hectare or per acre of the land that we use. Because in that instance, you can see that about 60% of the continent population actually involved in agriculture. We have 60% of the world's about arable land. 60% of the continent population being involved in agriculture, yet we are net important of food. So it means that there's something that we're not doing right. And of course, we have a critical case of China as an example on how to modernize agriculture. Because we look at the land size in terms of the arable land that we have as a continent compared to China. It cannot be, it cannot be that China is food secure when the continent of Africa is suffering. So obviously there's some lessons there to be learned, and I believe that that kind of engagement that we are having as a special focus on agricultural modernization be a key component to unlock that potential that we have as a continent to be able to cure our food needs and of course to be able to lift millions out of poverty as has been done by china lastly the second half of uh, you know foreign minister Wang Yi's trip uh, will bring him to brazil and jamaica ahmed do you know uh, some say this means this shows like uh, you know how much uh, proper importance china places on the global south and uh, what's your understanding of that yeah, I think absolutely. This is part of China's projection on the international stage. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative has given an infrastructural leap for many countries around the world, not least in Africa, where the foreign minister was touring. China, uh, Africa needs Chinese investment, and there needs to there need to be greater economic integration within Africa itself and with foreign markets and China's investments facilitate that. And it's not just in Africa, it's the interdependencies that China is building with uh, some of the more cash-rich countries in the GCC, for instance. If you look at Saudi Arabia and China, they are really deepening and intensifying uh, the, the, their ties. There have been high-level visits from both leaders to each other's countries, and the relationship is going beyond the import and export of hydrocarbons. As you know, China imports. The, the GCC accounts for 50% China's oil imports, so it's a region that's crucial for, for, for China's energy security. But increasingly, the GCC wants, and, and North Africa, wants to partner with China on technology. They want to be able to move up the technological value chain. When President Xi visited Saudi, a lot of MOUs were signed, and many of them focused on cooperating on things like 5G, uh, renewable energy technology, wind and solar, subsea cables, and so on and so forth. So increasingly, this relationship will be not just about energy, but also about technology.
So, Paul, obviously, you know, China, you know, we are talking about the development in the, in the global south in Africa in particular. There, you know, China comes in to, in terms of its role to be played by the country, it used to be the infrastructure, you know, trade, import, export, you know, but Ahmad talked about also uh, increasingly technology, you know, these uh, high-end technologies, you know, and EVs, for example. What do you make of that, the China's role in the development, in the growth of African countries here? Yeah, I think it's going to be, it's still going to be strategic, as I said earlier. I mean, increasingly, uh, we're looking at the continent about 1.3, 1.4 billion people. See, much China's uh, population uh, as we speak now. So, obviously, we're going to keep seeing an increment in terms of the engagement between Africa and China. The global south is increasingly, I mean, becoming very important. And of course, China is actually actively taking the new role in that. And even the earlier discussions about some of the voices that we heard even about the the Israel-Palestine uh, issue, about the kind of voting pattern that has been seen from the African continent, each of them showing their respective voices. Uh, even earlier in the Russia-Ukraine uh, related issue, so led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, went to Ukraine to also present what Africans think about, about the situation in Russia. So obviously, uh, we can see that geopolitically, uh, Africa is, is increasingly becoming very important. And of course, China sees that, and of course, Africa also sees China's interests, and all the interests are also aligned with the convergence of interests. China is a developing country, just like many or all African countries. Uh, we have some of the poorest uh, countries in, in the world being in, in Africa. We are also edge on developing China's model of development, where we've seen that the last three or four decades, China has lifted about 800 million people out of poverty. African developing countries want to also do the same. So that's a clear sign that there's a convergence in terms of interest, in terms of the development, vision, and visions of countries and countries. For that kind of convergence in terms of vision, we believe that this relation will continue to grow, uh, to continue to modify itself as the vision grows. Of course, now, as you mentioned earlier, when we were talking about big, big infrastructure projects. They're not going to stop, though, but of course, we're going to see more innovative now, even from the DRI 10th anniversary that was held last year. We'll talk about the shift from big, big projects to a small, beautiful, environmentally sustainable project. China announced that they want to stop their I mean, uh, terms of uh, coal plants in across across other parts of the world. So obviously, these are all development that is going to shape the kind of relation that Africa has with China. I believe that it's going to increase, it's going to grow uh, as developing countries find their voices in the global state. In fact, recently, even last year, mm -hmm. Africa was able to join the G20. Uh, because you have to be in the room when some of these big global aspects are happening. And luckily, we've got a chance to be uh, separate on the G20 uh, uh, table. Now. So obviously, this kind of development are going to shift. And as Africans find their voice at global stage, as they try to also make their voice known, try to state their position without fear or favor towards any group or, or, or so whatever, I believe that that is going to also enhance and also bring some dynamics in terms of the relationship that we have with China going forward. With that, we come to the end for today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Xu Qinduo. See you next time. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 